When was the last time you read a letter? Somebody sends you a letter and you spent some time looking at it and reading it. When was the last time you read a letter? Chances are you haven't done that in a while. Right? We don't communicate that way anymore. We have email. Now you even have Twitter. You can say all that you need to say in 140 characters, right? That's even a great way to compose national policy, some might say. We don't use letters very often, not anymore. But if you talk to your grandparents or maybe someone a little bit older than yourselves, you can remember when people would communicate by letters. I remember my grandmother talking about how when my grandfather was stationed overseas uh, during World War II, that he would send letters back. And of course, they were oftentimes redacted or you know, the military would help themselves to make sure that there was nothing in those letters that would give away positions and that sort of thing. But letters are something special. And they communicate deep thoughts sometimes. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's writing a letter. And sometimes we miss the fact that he's writing a letter to people that he loves. And yet he's having to write to them about some difficult things. The church there at Corinth had a lot of conflict and a lot of division in it. He's having to help them overcome some of that division and some of that conflict. And one of the things that was a source of conflict in that church was the conflict over spiritual gifts. And, and he spends quite a bit of time talking to them about the conflict over those spiritual gifts. And apparently some of them were jealous because they didn't have all the gifts. Some of them were apparently jealous because one person had the gift of being able to speak in tongues, speaking in languages they hadn't studied. Some of them had the gifts of prophecy. And that seems to be a source of, of conflict between them or tension. Why don't I get to have the gift of speaking in tongues? Why don't I get to have the gift of prophesying? And so Paul spends a lot of time discussing that. But in the midst of that discussion of speaking, or in that discussion of gifts, he talks to them about how this ought to play out in the way that they worship. As we continue thinking about our worship this morning, we spent a couple weeks talking about different aspects of worship. And this morning what we want to think about, <clears throat> excuse me, what we want to think about is the order of worship. The way God would have us worship in an orderly fashion. The attitude by which we ought to worship. I think there's some interesting things as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that helps us examine the attitude that we bring to worship and how we ought to worship. And that's what I want us to do this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we'll spend most of our time. And we want to think about, first of all, Paul's exhortation to these Christians that they know how to control their spiritual gifts. And as we look at that, we want to think about the attitude that we bring to worship. We want to think about the order or the, un the ruling matter in which we worship. We want to think about some practical applications for the church today. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's introduce this idea and notice what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 
is the third chapter that Paul spends on this idea of spiritual gifts. Notice what he says, verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and for exhortation and consolation. What we want to glean from these opening verses is this idea of edification. Several times in this chapter, Paul's going to talk about edification or edifying or edifies. Now, back in the 80s, it was kind of the vogue thing in our brotherhood to talk about edification, and we almost always talk about it in terms of encouragement. You need to be edifying. You need to be encouraging, and there's certainly nothing wrong with being encouraged. I hope that when you leave on Sunday morning, every Sunday morning when you walk out the door, I hope that you are encouraged. But the word for edify means something better than just being encouraged. It's the idea of being built up. We use the word today, edifice, a building. And we understand it in those terms, being built up. Up. Sometimes being built up means that I'm, we're adding to each other's knowledge. Being built up sometimes means we're, we're building on one another's attitude. Sometimes it means we're building on each other's love. But it's the idea of building each other up. And that's what Paul says. Whatever you do in the church, it needs to be done for the purpose of building the church up. He uses this word, edifies, several times throughout this chapter. Notice verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. And so as we think about our worship, Paul makes this statement. He makes this command, verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. Now, this is that attitude that I think sometimes we miss as we look at this chapter. Yes, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. But it's very interesting to me. Here in this verse, verse 26, he says, What is the outcome then when you assemble? And he places the discussion here in verse 26 in the worship assembly. And he says, look, you know, sometimes when you come into your worship assembly, one has a psalm. As was common in the Jewish Sanhedrin worship, or not Sanhedrin, but synagogue worship, it would often be the case that somebody would present a reading of a psalm. And oftentimes they would then teach on that psalm. Of course, sometimes they sang psalms. There's an ambiguity here for us not to know whether he's talking about someone wants to sing a psalm or someone wants to present a psalm and then teach on it, but somebody has a psalm. Then he says, look, sometimes there's someone there that has a teaching. Sometimes, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, someone has an interpretation. Someone has a tongue. Let all things be done for edification.
in the worship assembly, Paul says, the purpose of things needs to be for the building up of the church. When I come into the worship assembly, what should be my attitude? <clears throat> What's going to be for the building up of the church? When I begin to plan my portion of the worship assembly, what should my goal be? <clears throat> to build the building up of the church, the building up of the assembly. As we back out of verse 26 and we begin to see what's going on in the church at Corinth, Paul begins to talk about this conflict between those who were able to speak in tongues and those who were not. Notice verse 4. He says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongue, unless he can interpret, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, whether a flute, a harp, the producing a sound, if they do not produce distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? Skipping down to verse 9, he says, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are some who had this ability to speak in languages, but they had not studied. And as long as there were people who could understand those languages, they could get something out of it. But if there was no one there who didn't, who, who knew those languages, it was nothing to them. And yet people apparently there in Corinth were jealous over this ability to speak in tongues. And Paul says, if you're not getting anything out of it, who cares? What good does it do for you? He says, therefore, I wish that you could prophesy. Now, when we think of prophecy, when we think of prophesying, we think of telling the future. That's not really what the word means, although sometimes that is what is included in prophecy. Prophesying just means speaking the words of God. So someone who has a message from God. Could be something in the future, could be something right now. And so it makes sense. The apostle says, I wish that everyone had that ability to, to get a message from God and could communicate that to the church as a whole. That would be awesome. But you see, there was conflicts in this church because there were people that were coming into the assembly and said, oh, let me speak in this language. You know, have you ever known someone who has the ability to speak several different languages? Uh, I've had that happen in my life. I've known people that they, they can speak three or four different languages. And sometimes you meet someone and they're able to, maybe they're trilingual, or maybe they're even able to speak four or five languages. And sometimes you meet somebody like that and you would never know it unless somebody told you, hey, man, you know that guy speaks five different languages? But then you have, you have those folks every once in a while uh, that they're able to maybe speak bits and pieces of, of some languages. And those are the first ones that come in, you know, and they, maybe they say hello to you in German, or maybe they say hello to you in, in Spanish, you know. That's kind of where I am. You know, I can speak like four or five phrases, in, you know, maybe a couple languages. 
you know, como esta, muy bien, you know, how are you, I'm well, and you, right? Guten Tag, good day, right? And then as soon as that other person starts speaking, uh, you know, actual words, you know, I'm lost, right? We're a little bit braggadocious about it. Paul says that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. We're not supposed to be looking out for ourselves. But there are people in Corinth, man, it would, it would be awesome to be able to talk to anyone in any language. It would be, be awesome to meet a stranger from a foreign land uh, who doesn't speak your language and you're just able to start talking to them miraculously in their language. So I can see why people would want that, especially in Corinth where you have sailors, you have a port city where people from all over the world are coming to that port. But Paul says that's not where it's at. He continues, verse 10. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If I then do not know the meaning of the languages, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian. To me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Again, he starts talking about the edification of the church. You might want to speak all these different worldly languages, but it doesn't matter if there's no one there who speaks them. Now, here's the crux of what we're trying to get to today, verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who of the ungifted say amen at the giving of your thanks since he does not know what you're saying for you are giving thanks well enough but the other person is not edified I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you however I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue Paul says when we assemble together Paul says look it doesn't do you any good to be able to speak these languages if no one is edified but as we talk about this, we understand the context in which Paul's talking. He says, as we worship, you can worship with your spirit, and you can worship with your mind. And in the context of what he's saying, those people that were able to speak languages they never studied, speak in tongues, they were worshiping with their spirit, but nobody around them was getting anything out of it. They weren't worshiping with their minds. And to me, this is an interesting concept as we look at this passage, which is, as we worship together, we are interacting with each other. When you lead a prayer in the assembly, other people are praying along with you. Say that, and I think for the most part we're accustomed to that concept, but I wonder how often we really dwell on that. The person that's praying, leading the prayer, everyone is praying with them. 
They're edified by that prayer. Paul says, when I sing, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. When we are singing together, I am singing with my mind and my spirit. I am saying the words already built up in my spirit and in my mind. How easy is it? Jay leads us in singing. We see the words on the screen. Many of us have known those words since our early childhood. And it's easy many times to just go through the minutia of saying the words, right? Without even really thinking about it. But we need to dwell on them. We need to sing them with our mind and with our spirit. So when we put these two concepts together, the edifying of the church and singing with my mind or worshiping with my mind and my spirit, the broad context of what Paul's dealing with is this conflict between those who had different spiritual gifts, but it's informing us also that there is a purpose in our worship of building up the church and singing both or worshiping both with our minds and with our spirit. Worship is an interaction that we do with one another. And as I plan my portion of worship, if I'm the song leader, if I'm the person doing the prayers, if I'm the person at the Lord's table, I need to plan that for the building up of the church and not be focused on myself. These folks were focused on themselves. And they were focused on, look at me, I am so great, I'm able to speak in these tongues. Or look at me, I'm so great, I'm able to prophesy. That's not our issue today. But sometimes, in some places, we've met those folks that seem to want to make worship all about themselves. I don't like that song. I love that song. I don't like this. I love this. I don't like that. I love this. And we forget what is the purpose of our worship. The building up of each other. As Christians. And as a church. And we are interacting with one another in that. Now as we move back into verse 26, Paul begins to tell us that not only do we need to come to worship with this attitude of what is building up to the church, and not only thinking about my mind but my spirit, he talks about that attitude, but now he says, here's how we ought to conduct our worship. And the way we ought to conduct our worship is in an orderly, ruly, disciplined fashion. Notice how he does this. Again, we'll start in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. We can look at this verse and we can see in the early church, based on 1 Corinthians 14, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we know that they had times of singing in their assembly. We can know that they had times of teaching in their assembly. We can know that they had times of prayer in their assembly. We know that they had times of scripture reading in their assembly. All those things are things that we do in our worship service. Why do we do those things in our worship service today? 
because of 1 Corinthians 14. Because of a handful of other scriptures where we see these things being done by the New Testament church. Verse 27, Paul continues. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, each in turn, and one must interpret. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. We have some folks in our community today, the religious community, I guess we might say, uh, who believe that it is still possible that in a miraculous fashion someone might speak in tongues. Now, I don't believe that that exists today. Uh, for a couple different reasons, I believe that was something that God allowed to happen during that apostolic period of the church. But there are some today, some churches today, that still practice that. And this church, this passage is informative to us because even in the first century when these things were practiced, it was done in an orderly fashion. If there was someone there that could interpret the message and convey that to the church, then that was fine. And it was spoken, and it was done in an orderly fashion. If God allowed tongues to go on today, we would expect to follow that same pattern of a message being delivered only if there was someone there that could interpret it. But Paul continues, verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the church's saints. Now here's an interesting comment. Here's an interesting observation that Paul makes. He says, look, you might be a church full of prophets. And there might be many of you that have some great message that you want to deliver. But it should only be done by, at the most, two or three. And he says the spirit of prophets is subject to the prophets. You mean, Paul, that even in the day of miraculous, inspired messages from God or from the Holy Spirit, even when men were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak, even in that apostolic day, people still... were expected to conduct themselves in a controlled fashion? That even in a room in which there might be many prophets, only two or three were to deliver a message? Because the spirit of prophets is subject to the prophets themselves? And Paul drives home the point, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. Paul's point is your worship service needs to be an assembly that is ordered, that is disciplined, and not one that is confusion. Can you imagine what would happen if you had a room full of people and they just started speaking all over each other all the time? You know what that's like? A seventh grade social studies class.
It's complete confusion. Nothing is done. Nothing is understood. But as Paul's talking, he says, look, guys, it needs to be done in orderly fashion. Now look at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. There was a purpose to what they were doing in the assembly. And the purpose was not only that they might pay respect and reverence and awe to God, but that they might be building upon each other. That all might learn. That they all might be exhorted. Part of the purpose of our worship assembly is to grow in our knowledge of God. But if there's a bunch of confusion going on, that doesn't happen. Now in verse 34 through verse 36, we get to what today is kind of an ugly part. But let's read it and talk about it. Verse 34, Paul says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let, they, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Paul, what in the world are you talking about? This is tough for us today because we live in a culture in which women are in positions of responsibility and authority. Uh, you know, I think back, the very first job I had out of college was working for a congress woman. My doctor is a woman. My dentist is a woman. In fact, the last three doctors I've had that our family had, our family doctors, have all been women. I have female friends that are attorneys. And so this seems really bizarre to us. And we think, well, Paul, do you hate women? Does God hate women? Why would God say, why would Paul say women are to keep silent in the church? Verse 34, Paul says, they are to subject themselves as the law also says. Let's flip over just briefly to 2 Timothy chapter 2, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Now, if we flip over to Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14, or verse 16, rather, there's an interesting comment here as God is cursing the woman for her role in eating the fruit. He's already cursed the serpent, and next he's going to curse the man. But it says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Guys say, yeah. But that's the woman's curse, at least in part, not just the childbearing. That's the part we always remember. But she has to follow some guy. That's part of the curse. There are some commentators, as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, who think that that's what Paul means. 
when he says, for this is part of the law. It's tied to that idea that maybe there is an order of creation. God created Adam first, and Eve was deceived, and God said, your husband's going to have leadership over you. There are some men that will say negative things about women. Have you ever, have you ever known that? Have you ever known men to say any negative things about women? Paul doesn't make any of those arguments. But rather he says this is the way that God has had it from the beginning. Now here's the point. As we look at this, in verse 35 there seems to be something else going on perhaps in Corinth. Verse 35 says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for them to speak in church. There are some commentators that think that maybe there are some women that wanted to learn, and then perhaps they would blurt things out in the middle of the worship service. Have you ever known anyone that would just kind of blurt things out in the middle of a worship service? Just kind of obnox you know, obnoxiously ask questions uh, during the worship service? And it's confusing. It creates problems. Uh, and Paul's going back to this idea of there simply needs to be ordered and disciplined for the purpose of people being able to learn and to be built up. And that's why we do things in the church the way that we do, that we have an order to them, we have a discipline uh, to them so that everyone in the church can be built up and they can grow in their knowledge. Now, let's put all these things together and think about our worship, our worship service and our assemblies as the Brimbrook Church of Christ. My hope is, is that different men of the church, as they take on different responsibilities in the church, uh, leading prayers, leading singing, reading scripture, uh, preaching, will come to those activities with the idea in mind, how can I build up the church? How can the church be built by the things that I'm saying and that I am doing? Rather than, how can I draw attention to myself? Or, or what, what can I get out of it? And really the lesson is there for all of us. We ought to all approach our worship assembly as, how can I help build others up? Rather than, how can I please myself? It's not about me, as the phrase goes. It's about the church. I need to be singing. I need to be singing loudly so that others in the worship assembly can get something out of it so they can be encouraged by the words. When I pray, my mind and my spirit needs to be dwelling on the things that are being spoken for the building up of the church. One of the things I love about Jay is that I will get up here and I will read the bulletin and I'll list all the sick folks. And nine times out of ten, I forget to mention them in the prayer that I do as soon as I quit finish, as soon as I finish reading the bulletin. But Jay, at the end of the worship assembly, leads the closing prayer, and he remembers every single one of those folks. And the church is built up by that. When you prepare your role in service, do it diligently. Thinking, how can I build up the church? And as we worship and as we assemble together in our worship service, we need to do things in an orderly fashion. 
so that everyone that's in the assembly can grow and be built up and learn from the Word of God. That's why we do things. That's why we worship the way So that every soul, whether they're a new Christian, a young Christian, or someone that's been a Christian from year, for years, can continue to learn and can continue to grow. So that one day, we can stand between, before our Father as Christians who have gone, grown close to Him and are able to praise Him in that true heavenly worship assembly. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you need to be united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Whatever your need, won't you come? Just together we stand and